0: One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, "'What shall I do? "'I will send my son, whom I love.'" Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people.
1: How many of you played Mother May I as a child? All right, quite a few of you. I never liked that game because the authority rested upon the mother. Now, by the way, this this game is also known Captain May I or Father May I. So it's not that I have anything against mothers but I didn't like the game Mother May I because it seemed like all the authority rested upon Mother and she could do whatever she pleased, even if it wasn't fair to all of the other children. And since I was the only boy with three sisters, you can imagine why I was a little bit concerned. But since that time, I have learned that there are some overlapping words that challenge my concept of fairness. The language of the Bible includes two words that are very important here. One word is normally translated as power. Some people have power to make other people do something. And the other word appears three times in the first seven verses of today's text. It's the word authority. And you and I have both seen that some people like to flex their authority beyond their power to see it through. We tend to call that overstepping. Overstepping the bounds of their authority. On the other hand, some people exercise power without the proper authority or permission. We call those who exercise power without authority, we call them brutes or terrorists, criminals or thugs. Some overstep authority. Some demonstrate power without authority. The crisis in today's scripture is that Jesus was saying and doing things, and the establishment wanted to know where he got permission or authority to do these things. The first verse of one of the other gospels states exactly where Jesus got his authority. And when he got his authority and his permission. In John chapter 1 we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on in verse 14, the Word is clearly identified as Jesus. See, Jesus did not need permission or authority from the religious establishment because Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. In the beginning, he had authority and permission. And as we look forward to the end of time, we are reminded that Jesus has the wisdom to know when to assert authority And when to demonstrate His power. In the book of Revelation chapter 5 we read, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I see power and might as pictures of power and authority. And at the end of time, the lamb that was slain is worthy to demonstrate the wisdom of when to exercise power and when to exercise authority. In Jesus' day, the priests, the scribes, and the elders could be heard saying the same thing that we hear from children in the park in 2021. You're not the boss of me. And that mindset does not disappear when children grow up. How many times in the last 18 months have you heard about guidelines and mandates that go beyond one's authority? And just as we may demand, who gives you the right to demand that I? Jesus encounters a group who questioned his right to cleanse and to teach in the temple and to accept the praise from the crowds. In verses 1 through 8 of Luke chapter 20, page or 1045 in the, in the Pew Bibles, the religious establishment rejects Jesus' authority. It's not that they are considering it. It's not that they're going to meet him halfway. They simply say, Jesus, you've overstepped. And we're not going to do what you say. Even more so, we don't think you have the right to say and do what you are saying and doing. Notice in verse 1 that Jesus was teaching and preaching in the temple. And I want you to notice those two words. What's the difference between teaching and preaching? Teaching was the, the authority to teach in the temple was derived from having been tutored by a certified rabbi. The Sanhedrin would say you are an acceptable rabbi and you are permitted to have students that you can raise up to become rabbis. And when you think that your students are able to become a rabbi, we will also certify them as a certified, licensed rabbi. But Jesus had no rabbi that taught him. Yet when Jesus taught... All of the crowd recognizes when he teaches, he teaches as one who has authority. Because in the beginning, he was with God and he was God. So he taught as one who had credentials, even though he didn't have the paper on his wall. But it says that he wasn't only teaching in the temple, but he was preaching the gospel. That word preaching the gospel in the ESV and in the NIV is actually just one word in the language that Luke wrote. And it's actually the word that it's it's the verb form of the noun good news. He was good newsing in the temple. The word is literally he was evangelizing in the temple. He was teaching in the temple, and he was evangelizing in the temple. Teaching had to do with certification in your understanding of religion. But evangelizing is simply to proclaim there is good news that is available. And we must be aware that there is a difference between discussing religion, which is teaching, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. People can look at the past week and say, hasn't God been giving us great weather? And we can agree. We we see it in the skies. We, We feel it in the temperatures around us. And we can talk about religion. God gave good weather. But that won't get a person saved. Because Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yes, we have had beautiful weather, and you can observe the beautiful weather, but observing the beautiful weather will not introduce you to the name Jesus Christ. We must evangelize we must good news that the God who has given us great weather has also sent His very own Son to offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sin problem. Indeed, that's good news. In chapter 19, verse 39, that we looked at a a week ago, the religious leaders tried to silence Him. And when he would not allow himself to be silenced by verse 47 of chapter 19, their annoyance is moving to a whole new level. I can't ignore him anymore. He's just getting under my skin, is the feeling of the religious establishment. And because they are getting annoyed with what Jesus is saying and doing, they decide to issue a challenge. And if you've ever played chess, you know that check is when you have the potential of capturing the opposing king. See, the the villains in Luke's telling are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they come to Jesus and they think they're about to put him into check. Now, When we look at what's the difference between chief priests, scribes, and elders? Well, the chief priests were those who were heads over other priests. So we may think of them as the chairs of the House or the Senate committees. Okay, who then were the scribes? The, the scribes would I- include the, the legal professors, those who give legal opinions about what is acceptable and what is not. In, in these days, the, it would include the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were both part of the chief priests. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians were all part of the scribes. And the lay elders who were committed to their parties were part of the religious establishment. Luke's description of the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees is basically like saying we have broad bipartisan acceptance of the idea that Jesus is trying to drain the swamp within the beltway. And both parties agreed he's got to go. But their silence is now moving towards violence because they know that Jesus believes himself to be God. And their law allowed, if we can get Jesus to say that he got his authority from God, we can call that blasphemy and we are immediately authorized by our law to stone him to death. If we can't silence him, We'll kill him. And all we need is for him to simply say the words, I get my permission directly from God. They think they have him in a corner. They've heard him declare that he comes from God. They're just trying to get him to say the words. And so they pose this question in such a way that they think they have him in the corner in check. But Jesus knows he is to be offered on Friday as the perfect Passover lamb. And at this time in history, at this year in history, the Passover lambs were sacrificed on Friday. And this is only Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on the way you break down the Holy Week. And so they think they have Jesus trapped in a corner and they're about to stone him to death. But Jesus knows they can't stone me to death because I'm going to be sacrificed on Friday as the Passover lamb for the sins of the world. Stoning him would not have accomplished his messianic purpose as to why he came to the earth. So he foils their plan by the common rabbinic tradition of probing their question a little bit further. He says, you've asked me a question, let me ask you a question to see if I understand what you are asking. I think many of us have seen hearings and political drama where a politician brags for about 15 minutes and then they rant for about 10 minutes and then they say, yes or no, answer my question. And the person who is being considered or in front of the hearing says, "I, I, I can't answer that in a yes or no way. Because we've all seen these politicians who think they've just asked the gotcha question. And the scribes, the chief priests, the elders think they have just gotcha to Jesus. See, they're gotcha, and so Jesus asks a question. He says, John preached a baptism of repentance. A baptism that... If you participated in John's baptism, you are basically admitting, I have not been doing right, I need to start doing right. And and as the temple leaders, they were considered to be the experts in all things God. If anything had to do with God, they were the expert and they were supposed to have all the answers. So the leaders could not bring themselves to claim that John had God's permission to say what he said. Because if John was right, and they had gotten it wrong about some God thing, they would be exposing their own weakness. So they couldn't say John's baptism came from God. Yet on the other hand, If they said John's baptism was not given with God's permission, the people would revolt and turn on them. So either they have to admit their own weakness or they have to face the wrath of the crowd. And then in verse 8, Jesus does the mic drop. Jesus is fully submitting to the Father's will as He offers Himself as the perfect, once-for-all, Friday Passover Lamb. And He isn't about to let these big fish in a little pond intimidate Him into saying something that would lead to His stoning rather than His atoning. Jesus came for atoning, not for stoning. And so he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't step into their trap because he's submitting to the Father's will on Friday. Basically, he drops the mic and says, checkmate, because they have no response. They thought they had him trapped. He now has them trapped in a way that they have no escape. And before Jesus' words have stopped echoing against the stones of the temple, he proceeds to tell a parable that illustrates the absolute foolishness of this religious group of people flexing their power when they don't have any authority behind it. As a matter of fact, Jesus' parable says that if you reject the Son... It has dire consequences. And so he gives a parable. It says, you guys are trying to flex your importance. You think you're really something. You're asking me where my permission comes from. Let me reveal how you are demonstrating power without the authority to do so. And so he tells a story about a vineyard and some tenant farmers. It was very common in those days, as it is today for a distant landlord to allow their property to be used by others. Tenants may lease a pasture and contract with the landlord a set amount of the the crops or of the herd or the weight gain in a contractual payment. The person who owns the pasture says, you can use it, and then when the time comes... You'll pay me X number of dollars or X percentage of the harvest and we'll call it good. Now, many believe that this vineyard story is talking about the nation of Israel, that God planted Israel. But I, I think Daryl Bach is onto something when he says the vineyard is not Israel. The vineyard is the place of God's blessing or His promise. That God has set apart a place where He says, I'm going to bless these people with a promise of something to come. The tenants are Israel, the, the, the sharecroppers are those who are entrusted with taking care of the promise that God is going to send a blessing. To these people. The tenants. Mentioned five times in this parable. Are the Levitical system. And those who align with their power. You will remember way back when God divided up the land between the nations of Israel. He gave each tribe a certain amount of property for all of their descendants. But the tribe of Levi was not given a section of profit uh, Of property. Because the tribe of Levi were supposed to serve as as the priest. And so the people were supposed to give a portion of theirs to the priest. So the priest priest would live off of the portion of the donations of the rest of the tribe. But over time, the priest leveraged this thing that our portion isn't big enough. And so if we can control and manipulate and twist the others into giving us more and more and more, then we will gain more and more profit. And so the very priests that God had established to protect the promise had now been turned into power brutes and terrorists who were simply trying to pad their own pockets. And we will see in verse 16 that a new manager is about to take over the property. These leasees, these ranch managers are about to get booted and the land of promise is about to be managed by a new one. This is why I think the vineyard as a place of promised provision and providence and abundance Because even though the temple leaders get evicted, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost will assume management of the vineyard. So to this day, we get to rest in the place of God's promise, provision, and His abundance. Not being managed by the religious system, but being managed or led by the Holy Spirit Himself. So the tenants are gone And the Holy Spirit introduces the new covenant. And this fits into the bigger picture. Remember, Luke wrote a two-volume history. The gospel is volume one, and Acts is volume two. Volume one is the promise being made that God is going to send a deliverer. Acts is the promise being fulfilled. Because the deliverer is here, this is the blessing that God intends. So I believe the vineyard here is that place, whether it's in Israel or where we are right now, that God wants to provide an abundance. And these sharecroppers get a little bit big for their britches. They start demonstrating their power even though they don't have the authority or permission to do so. So if the tenants are the religious system and the people follow them, who are the servants? For we see that the the owner sends three servants and then a son. I heard a sermon yesterday where a famous West Coast preacher claimed the three servants that are sent are the prophets. But I think the treachery of the tenants, the treachery of the um, Jewish religious system predates the prophets. Soon after the descendants of Abraham's blessing arrive in the promised land, God gives them judges. It's in the book of Judges. And as we read about the judges that God gave to His people, the judges were ignored, they were disrespected, and the people increasingly did what was right in their own eyes. God sent judges, people ignored the judges. God sent a servant, and the tenants disregarded the servant. After the judges, God gave kings. And from the very first king forward, the people found that the, the kings are not dependable. And they revolted against the kings. And then overlapping the judges and the kings were the prophets. The prophets who called people to repentance. And, and those that would magnify the blessing. Those who said, if you do what God wants us to do, we will experience blessing." But they mistreated the prophets. Notice the descriptions here in front of us in in Luke chapter 20. Beginning in verse 5. I'm sorry, that's footnote number 5. In verse 10. The first servant comes and they beat him. A second servant comes and they beat and they treat him shamefully. That word, treat him shamefully, is the same root for which we get the word traumatized. And third, they wounded and cast out. So they beat, they traumatized, and they wounded the three different servants. Exactly what the nation had done to Israel. But let's not get on our high horse. Because our society today... Beats, traumatizes, and wounds those who claim to speak for truth. But even though the tenants mistreat the servants, notice the amazing mercy of the landowner. The landowner had contracted with the sharecroppers. They all knew what was expected. The landowner simply went to claim what they had already agreed was a right and a fair amount of rent for the land. And yet the tenants beat the servant. So, what's the landlord to do? Evict the tenants? No, we see the mercy of the landlord as he sends a second representative. A second representative who's traumatized by the tenants. He did what was fair. He showed mercy by sending a second. He showed amazing, great mercy in sending a third. I'm going to give you a third time, a third chance to do what is right. And they wound him as well. Since the tenants are not concerned with the authority of the contract, they've already demonstrated we're not going to do what we've already agreed is a fair thing to do. They're overstepping all concepts of rightful permission. They're ignoring the contract that they had already agreed to. They've shown that we're going to show our power, we're going to show our might, we're going to do what we want, even though it's beyond the the terms of the deal. And so the man says, all right, I'll send my own son. If I send my son to these tenants, maybe they'll do the right thing. But when the son appears, the tenants assume that the father has died. The landlord that they made their deal with, he must be dead because his son is coming. He's not coming himself. And according to their law, if the father, the landlord dies, and if his son is killed so that there are no more heirs to the property, if we can go just three years without an heir claiming a right to this property, it becomes ours. So a merciful and amazingly merciful landowner sends opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after his very own son. And these guys who are so bent on brute force, they say, hey, here's a chance for us to get what we don't deserve, but we're going to take it anyway. And under these circumstances, um, actually, it's a very strong prophecy of what's going to happen later on in the week. That Jesus was going to be beaten, traumatized, and wounded. Yet we can't underestimate the Father's love for His Son. And verses 15 and 16 tells us that there's about to be a change of management. See, Matthew tells the same story. But in Matthew's account of this story, it happens just a little bit differently. In Matthew's account, after the three servants and the son are sent, then Jesus asked the crowd... So what do you think the landowner ought to do with the tenants? And they say in Matthew chapter 12, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death, and then he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. The people themselves realize that these scoundrels of tenants need to be evicted and there needs to be a new manager of the ranch. And so Jesus repeats what they say in Matthew. Luke just says Jesus says what they say. Jesus says, all right, the landowner is going to evict them and replace it under new management. This new manager, though, is not a sharecropper. This new manager of that place of promise is not a tenant who's holding on to a land lease. It's the Spirit of God Himself who pours out the new covenant where He rules from within, rather from a temple or ongoing sacrifices. Because in verses 17 and 18, we see Jesus being exalted I told you last week that they were singing Christmas carols, as it were, the Psalms of Hallel, Psalm 118. And as they were singing Psalm 118 to praise Jesus, now Jesus quotes from that very same Psalm in verse 22, where he says that there is a rock that will be rejected. But that rock becomes the chief. Cornerstone. We used to sing a song in my teenage years. I, 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 I'm sure today's teens wouldn't sing that. Jesus is a rock and he rolls my blues away. Bop, shoo-bop, shoo-bop, woo! Jesus is a rock and he rolls my blues away. Bop, shoo-bop, shoo-bop, Woo! See, you guys are looking a little bit heavy. I needed to introduce a little Shubab. See, Jesus was introducing that he himself is the rock that others were rejecting. And as we have seen the villains move from silence to violence, we've seen the tenants progressing from beating to killing, while at the same time we've seen the praise of Jesus increasing throughout their latter ministry, it reminds me of a very modern reality. And that reality is is that your response to Jesus can spiral. It can either spiral down... it can spiral up if you accept jesus as the promised messiah who died and rose for your sin your praise your awareness of his goodness will spiral upward each day you will find more and more expressions of god's goodness to you if you accept that jesus is the messiah you will see his hand of blessing and provision in unlikely places. You will experience his, belief, his peace in unbelievable circumstances. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 describes it. From our faith, we then move for faith. But on the other hand, if you choose to reject Jesus as the Savior of the world... Your praise won't spiral upward, your sadness will spiral downward. Those five verses in Romans chapter 1 talk about when we say no to God, He gives us over. And we say no to God and, he, and we take a step deeper. And we say no to God and we take another step deeper. To the point where we get to the very last verse of Romans chapter 1 and we read, even though they knew God's righteous decree and that those who practice these things deserve to die. Even though we know that people that do that deserve to die, we go ahead and do it anyway, and we give approval to those who do those things. See, that's the downward spiral of saying no to Jesus. I'm not going to stretch out a long appeal I simply want to conclude by saying that they rejected Jesus, and rejecting Jesus has dire consequences. I'll simply say, rejecting Jesus never turns out well. But you will never regret saying yes to Jesus. Amen?